So here are two words that always make me a little bit suspicious. Maybe the same thing is true for you. Unlimited, unconditional. And our default is, yeah, right. Unlimited coverage, right. Unless I turn off the highway or an unconditional guarantee. And yeah, show me the fine print. Um, Does that not make you nervous when someone says, unlimited and unconditional? You start to think in your, in your head, it just starts right up and go, yeah, but what about when, or what about if, and there always seems to be a catch, and now I imagine that many of you might have had a similar conversation with God. God's unlimited love and his unlimited forgiveness, right, yeah, I heard about that once, one time at church, but have you checked my record? I don't think your un- is big enough for me. And if you think that perhaps God's unlimited is not big enough for you, then I can't tell you how happy I am to have you hear what we're going to talk about today. But let's time travel a little bit. We need to go back in time and pretend that this is still all pre-Easter. Jesus is on his way to the Passover. Um, He wants to celebrate with his disciples. And Passover is a really big deal. Uh, Because Passover is an annual celebration where Jewish people would get together and they would celebrate God delivering their ancestors from Egypt and from Egyptian slavery. It's a little bittersweet, honestly, in the first century because Israel is an occupied territory, occupied by Rome. Um, So the Jewish people are celebrating God's liberating activity in their past. But it didn't seem like he was going to answer their prayers in the present. But in spite of that, Passover was a big deal, and Jerusalem was absolutely the place to be. So to help you get a picture, there are thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims pouring into this large city. Every road is packed. Everybody is moving in the same direction. The city is crowded. All the good hotels with pools are full. Jesus and his band of followers. So that's his disciples, but it's also that larger group of followers that were kind of always with him. They joined that crowd of people and they began to move towards the city. The chief priests and the Pharisees and the keepers of the temple, they heard that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. This is finally the opportunity that we've been waiting for, if they can only find Jesus in the crowd. And so John 11 describes it like this at verse 57. But the chief priests and the the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. But Mark 14, verse 2, gives us a caveat. Because they're also really smart. But not during the festival, they said. Or the people may riot. Because Jesus was extremely popular. So he's somewhere in the city. Surely we'll be able to spot him, right? We'll put a few people on the gates watching and then tail him, follow him. And once the celebration's over, people are going to start to leave and then we will move in and we'll separate him from the crowd. We'll arrest him and then we'll have him put to death. Then we'll send out a group, a hit squad, to go find Lazarus and we'll put him to death too. But a bam, bing, bing, we'll put this whole unhappy story to bed John 12, 12 says, the next day. So if you're just working in your own timeline, that's about five 
actual days from the Passover celebration. There's spies on the lookout for Jesus, the fans eagerly expecting his arrival. So about five days from Passover, the great crowd that come for the festival <coughs> heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And before this, he'd been, you know, kind of taking the scenic route around, visiting villages, towns. But now the rumors are growing Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. Which gate will he come through? The whole city is abuzz with expectation. And, and Passover in general is going to be great. But now Jesus in specific, Jesus is going to be here. The reason that they're excited is they're thinking that maybe, maybe this will be the Passover that we finally not only celebrate Israel's liberation from Egyptian bondage, but perhaps maybe this is the Passover that we will experience liberty from our Roman bondage. Maybe, maybe Jesus will proclaim himself king and the city will be full of patriots. And so Rome is nervous and Pilate is nervous and the Pharisees are nervous and everybody's on the lookout for Jesus. And then they spot him coming. And when they see him from a distance, word travels fast. People line up on both sides of the road, inside the city and out. Verse 13, and they took palm branches and they lay them on the streets and they wave them in the air and they went out to meet him sh shouting, Hosanna! 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 Which meant, save us now! Save us now! Save us now! This was a cry. This was a prayer. And suddenly, they are focusing this prayer on a person. Jesus, as he rides into town, but then it escalates. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or who comes in the authority of God. And then it turned political. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they had assumed Jesus had come to Jerusalem to do something for the nation. But in fact, Jesus had come to do something for you to do something for the entire world. And in the next few days, unbeknownst to them, it would take everyone by surprise. Jesus was going to do something that was so confusing that they wouldn't understand it until after it had all been completed. In the next few days, Jesus would fulfill God's promise to Abraham and replace God's covenant with Israel. Because many centuries before this, the first, this, this first century event, God had promised Abraham that he would become a great nation. Uh, and through that nation, the entire world would be blessed. Jesus is about to fulfill that promise. And in fulfilling that promise, he would replace God's covenant with Israel. So for the next few days, uh, Jesus is in the temple and he's laying low and he goes out a little bit at night. There's a Jesus sighting here. No, oh, there's a Jesus sighting over there. And um, by the time the people, get, uh, the, the guards get there, Jesus and his guys are already gone. Uh, he even goes to the temple and he teaches for a little bit there. But before they can arrest him, he's gone. But then two days out from Passover, something that would have seemed miraculous took place. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law finally get a break. Something finally goes their way. One of Jesus' closest followers breaks rank. And Luke 22, 4 says, And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple uh, and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted. Yeah, the reason that they're delighted was because they were afraid. And so they were afraid that if Jesus became king and declared himself Messiah, 
that they would lose everything, everything that was valued to them. Jesus would take things away from them. And is that the reason that you were afraid to name Jesus as the king of your life? Because of what he might take away? But, it, but, but as they were about to discover, Jesus was not about to take anything away. Jesus came to give. Verse 5, they were delighted and they agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So stage is set. Uh, we've got the kingdoms of the world versus the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the, the kingdoms of this world with their, their, their top-down arrangement, with their violence-oriented arrangement, with the power and control mindset, and their plan would actually succeed. But their objectives would not be met. Because unlike them, Jesus did not cling to his life. It was his intention all along to give his life away. But before he did that, there were two loose ends that he had to tie up. Passover and the Passover meal was going to be just the perfect opportunity to do that. So he sends some friends out into the city to go find a place, right, that he and the 12 can celebrate Passover in the city, a place that's kind of off the beaten path, so they won't be interrupted, no strange knocks on the door, a place where no one will be able to find them and they will be able to have these final conversations because Jesus knew his time was drawing to a close. And as they began the Passover meal, something happened, something so disruptive. That, that might be why the disciples had such a hard time putting all the pieces together, even as they're all unfolding right in front of them. Um, that is, of course, until after the resurrection. Matthew 26 tells us what happened. 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and saying, take and eat, this is my body. In Luke's version, chapter 22, verse 19, he says, this is my body given for you. And just before they were about to take that first bite, they stopped and kind of looked at each other, eyebrows arching. Did he just say what I think he just said? This is your body? What? But it got even more offensive. Do this in remembrance of. To which they said, which they could have said, you, you don't need to tell us what this is in remembrance of. We've been doing this in remembrance of Passover and God saving the people, our ancestors, his people, since we were little kids. Our fathers and our grandfathers, they taught us to do this in remembrance of God coming to Egypt, taking his people out of slavery, punishing the nation of Egypt, punishing the Pharaoh. We know exactly what we are doing this in remembrance of. And in just a moment, Jesus changed all of that. And from now on, when you celebrate Passover, you will do this in remembrance of me. Now, most of us are Gentiles. So let me just take a moment to explain something so that you get what's going on here. What he just said, everybody should have gotten up and left the room. That should have been the end. Okay, Jesus. You've contradicted Moses, right? And said that we should listen to you instead. Uh, you placed yourself up and, and uh, above and apart from Moses. Frankly, you can mess with Moses, all right? Even though that's gotten us into quite a little bit of trouble. And that's one of the big reasons why you're so unpopular 
with the religious leaders. But, you know, we're okay with that. We're with you, Jesus. But please, don't mess with Passover. You can't replace Passover. You can't make Passover all about you. And that was just the beginning of the meal. Who knows what's going to happen next? Maybe that big triumphal entry, maybe that went a little bit to his head. Is this really what the Messiah would do? But he wasn't done. Verse 20, in the same way after supper, they, they eat the whole meal. And maybe things calmed down a little bit. They had some other chatter. But now, this is going to be like indigestion. Verse 20, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is. And you know, hang on, Jesus, hang on. We know, we know what this cup is. We know that this cup represents the, the blood that was shed by animals on the night that our ancestors left Egypt on the way to the promised land. They slaughtered a spotless lamb and put the blood over the top of the door and down the sides of the door. The death angel passed through Egypt and passed over every house under the blood of the lamb. And then we all went off to Mount Sinai and God established us as a brand new nation, the nation of Israel. We know exactly what this represents. So Jesus, if we could, please, could we just stick with the 1,500-year-old script that we all learned as children? I just want you to understand how extraordinarily disruptive this was. So in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Not a new covenant, the new covenant. This cup has always represented a celebration of the covenant with the nation. Up until this night, every time you got together, this was a celebration of the fact that God established a brand new relationship with the nation of Israel. But from now on, when you take this cup, you are going to celebrate a brand new covenant that begins tonight. And if they had been paying attention in Saturday school, these Jewish boys knew that the prophet Jeremiah predicted the day would come when God would establish a new covenant that would replace the current covenant. And that was more than 650 years before Jesus. And these disciples shared this upper room moment. The prophet Jeremiah said it in chapter 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. That covenant when, uh, that God established when Moses came down with the stone tablets and all the rituals and all the rules and all the stipulations, the I will, but, and you have to, and if you don't, then I won't. And he said, it's not going to be like that. But if there's going to be a replacement covenant, well then, what would that covenant be like? How will they be different? In verse 33, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The old law was written on stones, but the new covenant, there's going to be a new law. And, and I'm going to upgrade the delivery system, no longer written on stones, now direct communication, direct connection in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. They won't have to memorize the laws and the, the stipulations for the new covenant. It will be a covenant of conscience. All this was promised hundreds of years before the night that Jesus said that he was inaugurating not 
a new covenant, but the, the one that you should have been waiting for all along, right? So back to Passover. Luke records that Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant. The one that was promised long ago. The one that you have been looking for and waiting for, right? The one that's about to begin now. This new covenant represents a new kind of relationship because that's what a covenant is. It's an arrangement, it's an agreement or a contract between two parties. So this new covenant would represent a new kind of relationship, not between God and the nation, but between God and individual people. But what kind of covenant is it? Will it be like the old one with so many rules and conditions and punishments and blessings? We, we can't even keep up with most of them. Or is this new covenant going to be more like the one with our forefather, Abraham? That was more of an unconditional covenant. And God um, came to Abraham and he says, look at me, look at me, Abe. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless the world through you. And you can work with me or you can work against me. But when it's all said and done, Abraham, you are going to be a great nation. And I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm making you a promise. I really hope that you'll work with me. So this, this new covenant, what kind of covenant would it be? Um, so if you, if you wouldn't mind, let's just hit pause for a second here on Jesus and the disciples. We'll jump out of that. And uh, just for a moment, let's talk briefly about ancient covenants because uh, well, because I know you want to, and then we'll come back to the story. I want to help you to understand the significance of what was happening in the room that night. So there are three kinds of covenants that dominated the ancient landscript, uh, landscape, and so it's time for me to drop some more great party lingo terms. Drop these at parties, either online gatherings or hold on to them for later, but you and I, why don't we dive into some ancient covenants 101. Covenant number one, it's called a bilateral parity treaty. This is not going to be on a test, but you should still stick with me here, okay? Because this ultimately does come back to you. A bilateral parity treaty is a covenant between two equals. It's an I will, if you will, or you will, if I will, and if you don't, I'm going to stop. And, and, and if I don't do what you expect me to do, um, then you don't have to do what I'm expecting you to do. You can think of this as a business contract. They are equals, and they came up with a contract that they both sign or that they both agree. They kiss, they hug, they smear their blood, or they trade their daughters. There's all kinds of weird and wild things that they used to do to sign a treaty. Then there is the bilateral suzerainty treaty. A suzerain is like a king or a leader or a powerful person, and the way that, that this works is that the suzerain, the, the king, would dictate terms and conditions to a lesser power, to a vassal, who didn't have much choice in the matter. And the best way to understand this one, I think, is curfew. Okay, son, my car, my keys, my house. I'm going to let you drive my car, and I expect you to be home at 10 p.m. What time? Say it out loud. 10 p.m., Okay, here's the keys. Now, if you don't get home by 10, you are no longer able to drive this car until we can work out a new arrangement. And so the vassal, which is the child, says, thank you, Father, 
of course, I will obey all of your rules. You don't get to give me any rules or conditions because I'm the suzerain and you are the vassal. So does that make sense? Do you get it? That's pretty much it. But here's the important thing about that. God's relationship with the nation of Israel was a bilateral suzerainty treaty. It was like nationwide curfew. So God says to the nation, here are the rules, and God dictated all the terms. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai hundreds and hundreds of years before this Passover, Moses comes down and he had all the rules, all the conditions, all the punishments. And if you'd like to read them, they're all outlined at the end of the book of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus, and parts of Deuteronomy. It's the parts of the Bible that unfortunately put many people to sleep. They are really important, and there are tremendous lessons to be learned from them, but they are not for us because we are not part of ancient Israel. When you read them, you think to yourself, who in the world could do all these things? It's so complicated, it's, but this is so important because God was founding a nation. He was founding a civilization. He was founding a people that needed rules and they needed laws and he was establishing a brand new society. He established an I will, if you will, covenant. But if you don't, then I won't. So here's how it went. He said to the nation, you can go, you can read it all yourself. This is, this is how it went. He says, obey me, don't worship other gods, keep my rules and I'll keep you safe. Your crops will grow and I will make sure that you are victorious in war. But if you don't keep my rules, if you worship other gods, well, I'm not going to protect you and your crops aren't going to grow and I'm not going to be for you anymore. And in ancient Israel's entire history with God was faithful to God, unfaithful to God, faithful to God, unfaithful to God. And then after a whole bunch of times of unfaithful to God, God actually put the entire nation on timeout. That's when timeout actually started. They finally abandoned God, and they worshiped idols, and God said, you know what? I have warned you. You and I had an agreement. You broke your end of the deal. And he took all the leaders of the nation of Israel and put them in Babylon for a 70-year timeout. Then when they'd learned their lesson, he allowed them to come back to their land. This was a suzerainty vassal treaty. I'm the king, you're the subjects, here are my demands. If you don't obey, you will be punished. If you do obey, you will be blessed. Now, there's a third kind, a third type of treaty. It was common. It's called a promissory covenant, or it's a patron covenant. And in this covenant, just hear the difference here. One party binds itself to an obligation for the benefit of the other party. It's not bilateral. It's not an I will, if you will, if you don't, I won't. And it is unconditional. The best way to think about this is junior high crush. You either wrote the note, or you read the note, or your friend uh, got the note, and then they, they let you read it. Um, and it went something like this. I promise to love you forever. I'll be your friend forever. And even though your, your, your family is moving across the country, and even though we're never going to see each other, I'm going to be your best friend. Nothing will ever tear us apart. Just all unconditional. 
No power can separate our hearts. It's all on one side. It's unwavering promise of love. And you don't have to do anything for me. This is all about you. Now, fortunately, you did not ratify this covenant by slicing the neighbor's cat in half and sacrificing it, I hope. Which is a really important part of understanding ancient covenants. Ancient covenants were pretty much all ratified the same way something had to die. And normally what they would do is they would take an animal, or more than one, depending on how wealthy the parties are, sometimes multiple animals, and they literally, actually, slice them right down the middle. And then they would lay them open on the ground, and then the parties involved would walk between the halves of the dead animals. So are you familiar with the language of cutting a deal? You know, hey, why don't we go to the office, we're going to sit down, let's cut a deal. That language came from this ancient idea. You would cut a covenant. That's what the Hebrew word actually means. And as they walked through these dead animal parts together, here's what they're actually saying to each other. This is what the agreement is. May it be unto me, as it is with these unfortunate animals, if I violate the terms of this covenant. So in it, I'm pledging my life. This is a blood covenant for both parties who walk between the animal parts. So in a promissory covenant, only one person is making the promise, right? So when a person made a promissory covenant, you would still have the sliced animals. But instead of both parties walking between, only one party would walk between. Why? Because only one party in the covenant is making a promise. It's all on them. So fascinating anecdote that is crucial to understanding this. When God appeared to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then I'm going to bless the whole world, the entire world through that nation. And they ratified the agreement with the sacrifice of an animal. Read it for yourself. It's in Genesis. They cut open several animals and they have them up and they laid them on the ground with a space between. And Abraham didn't walk between because this was all on God. Now, here was the question that night on Passover. God's establishing a new covenant and this one was with the world. So which of these covenants was God establishing? Jesus answered that in the way he introduced the new covenant. Luke twenty-two twenty. this cup is the new covenant. And the next statement clarifies the type of covenant it's going to be. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I will play the role, Jesus was saying. I will play the role of the animal that is sacrificed to inaugurate and to launch this new covenant. To which, if they were thinking straight, they would have thought, okay, right, so that's your part. What's our part? He said, which is poured out for you. Guys, he would say later, and those, those guys would later say to the Gentiles and the Jews that they would preach and reach, and then eventually to the whole world they would say, you are on the receiving end. I am, as a representative of God who has come to establish this covenant, I'm on the giving side. You are on the receiving side. So let me say that for you another way. It's for you, it's on me. It's 100% 
for you. It's 100% on me. Matthew's account adds a couple more words in 26, 28. He says, for the forgiveness of sins. And there is so much happening at one meal, right? There's too much happening, too much going on. Heads spinning. No one can focus. So, so wait, hold on. Hold on a second. You are establishing the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied about. Okay? And in this covenant, Jesus, you are representing God's interest in establishing a covenant. So from now on, when we gather, we are no longer going to celebrate God, who you told us to call Father, delivering our people from Egypt. From now on, we are going to celebrate the establishment of this new covenant. And the blood part's really throwing them off. They can't figure it out because most of what Jesus said doesn't make any sense until after the resurrection. So what, what do you mean this covenant is in your blood? Blood like that, the way you're referencing it, that means death. And Jesus, you're the most popular person in the entire city. People are waiting for you to step out and, and during Passover and to proclaim yourself king. What do you mean this covenant that you're beginning, that you're ratifying, is going to be in your blood for the forgiveness of sins? Wait a minute. Blood for the forgiveness of sins? That's the temple equation. That's what we've experienced our whole lives. We go to the temple, we take an animal, they sacrifice the animal, we get forgiveness of sins. <coughs> and now, you're talking like you, that you are the animal that resulted in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, this is, this is all happening over supper. We had a long walk, it was a, it was a big crowd, we got big plans, obviously, so many things. You're saying so many things that... that that don't sound like what we've known for our whole lives. It's, it's too much. It's too fast. My head is spinning. Even if this was true, even if you are being literal here, you can only spill your blood once. And, and they should have seen this coming because on day one when Jesus stepped onto the pages of human history as an adult, way back to episode one in the Upside Down, John the Baptist looking to this very moment, three years or so earlier, he said to the crowd, gathered on the banks of the Jordan River, John said, look, the Lamb of God, who single-handedly, all by himself, going to take it all on himself, who has come to take away the sin of the world. And the next day, this new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins would officially be ratified by Roman nails and Roman steel. The empire that best represented the kingdoms of this world was victorious for a moment. But God was up to something bigger. It's a new covenant, a, a new arrangement, a new agreement between God and the entire image-bearing rebel race, a new covenant for every nation and every generation. This was the big one. This was the final one. This is the everlasting one. This is the one that would fulfill God's promise to Abraham and replace God's arrangement with the nation of Israel. This is the unconditional covenant. It was a promissory covenant. Only one half of the relationship, only one party in the relationship would act on and inaugurate this covenant. And it would be Jesus, God's Son. It was unilateral, one-sided, 
unlimited coverage. And, and would there be terms and conditions um, like there used to be with the relationship when, when Moses and the people of Israel? Well, the answer is yes. But they would be nothing, nothing like the terms and conditions, the laws, the ceremonies, the stipulations that God laid out for the nation when he established that covenant at Mount Sinai. I think if you were to say to John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle John, John, this is really, really too good to be true. But it's so good. I hope it's true. That God established the potential for a relationship with me through Jesus, his son, that he forgave all my sins, that it was unilateral. He just did the whole thing. That it really was for me and it was all on him. John, what do I do? So John who sat there that night, just, just as confused as everybody else. John who watched Jesus die. John who put his arm around Jesus' mother to take care of her. John who peered into an empty tomb. John who had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. John who gave his life so that the world would know that God had done something for the world. John. How do I get in on that? How do I respond? It's for me. How, how do I make it mine? The best words I know are these words. John 3. Whoever believes in him, trusts him, just says yes to, that whoever believes and that it happened and believes it's for them shall not perish. You won't be left out of that covenant. You will have eternal life. New covenant life. Who wouldn't say yes to that? And if we were to say to Peter, it's too good to be true, how, how, how do I get it, Peter? I think Peter would have an even more simplified answer. I think Peter would, would take us back to his day one, first day he met Jesus, and Jesus said, hey, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter says, but you don't know anything about fishing because you're a carpenter. And then they caught so many fish that they didn't know what to do, and Peter falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, I don't know who you are, but you are in a different category than me. I'm not worthy to be in the same boat as you. Peter looks up at Jesus and Jesus says, Peter, I know all about you. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to follow me. My friends, that is the invitation to the new covenant. It's simply follow me. It's follow me with this caveat. I know all about you. I know what you did. I know what you didn't do. I know what you promised to do. I know you can't even keep your own rules. I know that you have broken mine. But all of that is covered under my unlimited, unconditional covenant that I established in my blood for you. It's on me. It's for you. It's on me, but it's for you. So come, follow me. And you say, oh, Graham, it can't be that simple. It's that simple. You're just used to how other people have treated you. This is why Jesus said he's your perfect heavenly father. It's as simple to start as trusting that it's true. And then it becomes all for you. Kind Father, thank you for initiating this on my behalf, on the 
behalf of my friends here. And I don't, I don't know where people stand with hearing that, the way to start this relationship. And so if, if you are one of those people who was interested in establishing a relationship to God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just direct folks right now that it really is that simple. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be able to check all the boxes to start. We start just by following you, by making that choice to say, I, I trust. I believe. I believe, Jesus, that what you did helps me. I believe that you made it possible for me to have a relationship to God and I, I want it. If this is you, then you can uh, hit the button that's going to appear in our chat window there, raise a hand, and you can go into a chat with someone to help talk you through this, but you can pray this prayer. God, thank you for what you've done for me. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for my sin. I believe that he paid for it. I don't know how it all works, but I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you with that, but I'm trusting you with my life. Thanks for giving your life for me, and now here's my life for you. God, speak to us. Move through us. Convict us that we would be able to live in the freedom that this allows for. Thank you for being present with us wherever it is that we are and connecting us to you even though we feel apart. Be at work, Holy Spirit. Change hearts change lives. Draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.